Welcome, welcome to all listeners to the official Semester at Sea Wavelengths podcast. This is episode five, and I will be your host for this episode, Patrick Fennell, member of the Young Alumni Council and Spring 2014 alum. Every episode of the podcast, we hear interviews, stories, and other audible creations from students, alumni, and or staff. Semester at Sea is a biannual study abroad program taking place during the fall and spring semesters where students get the opportunity to study abroad on a ship and where the world becomes your classroom. Semester at Sea is hosted by ISE, the Institute for Shipboard Education, a nonprofit based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Semester at Sea is made possible with support of listeners like you. Whether students, alumni, or neither, Visit semesteratsea.org to get involved and find out more. You can also find Semester at Sea on any of your favorite social media platforms. Applications are currently open and accepted on a rolling basis. Donations are welcome and serve students the opportunity at experiences like you hear on this show. Now, today's first segment. Today's first segment, we will be hearing from Christian Lowe, Spring 2016 alum, Offboarding Youth Trustee for Semester at CISE, and Green Book Project Founder. Hope you enjoy. My name is Christian Lowe. I am the Offboarding uh, Youth Trustee for the Board of Trustees for the Institute for Shipboard Education. I'm a alumnus of this spring 2016 voyage of semester at sea, and I am currently the founder and creator of the Green Book Project, which is an app that helps folks from marginalized groups uh, find inclusive businesses while also avoiding discrimination. And for all those, all my astrology people, I'm a cancer. <laughs> my voyage was spectacular. Uh, it really was a, a life-changing experience. The places we, we went included Japan, China, uh, Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, India, South Africa, Ghana, Morocco, and England, I think. And it was really just, just an amazing time to, to be sailing the world. There, I, I definitely went into the voyage feeling like kind of scared and a little bit like a little bit of trepidation. Um, I, was, I, I had never met anyone else before that had done a semester at sea program. So I was very much like feeling like, a, I guess, like a trailblazer in terms of my like personal um, network. And it blew away my expectations, uh, like hands down, but it also like changed so much in terms of just my, I, my outlook on life and um, even my career. Um, I actually went into semester at sea with, in, in my senior year of college with the expectation that uh, after I graduated, I would be either going into the foreign service to work for the state department or working as, a, as teaching English um, as a second language abroad. And I actually did complete 180 there and <laughs> ended up going into uh, tech and software engineering specifically, because I, uh, on, on, throughout the course of my, on my voyage, I saw in many ways how entrepreneurship and uh, tech and private sector work could have a outstanding social impact on the world. And I realized that my talents were best suited for, for that kind of environment. And so I like, hands down, I think semester at sea was one of the most pivotal, pivotal experiences of my entire life. For sure. I, I feel like every light, every port was life-changing for me, but I think one of the ones that that probably had the biggest impression and, and specifically led me to going uh, with my current pursuit of, of founding the Green Book Project uh, was actually in India. So I had the 
absolute privilege of being an impact scholar um, on board the spring 2016 voyage. And that program for, for anyone who may not, for listeners who may not know what that is, is a program that semester C sponsors for students who have an interest in social justice causes. So that might be human rights, that might be food justice, that might be um, women's rights, really anything with regards to kind of like, I guess, advancing humanity. And so uh, I, was, I was selected as one of five impact scholars for the spring 2016 voyage. And um, because part of that program was funding towards impact programs such as uh, the one I went to in India called the Kranti House Program. And the Kranti House is essentially a safe house for um, young women who have either been victims of sex-based or, sex- or gender-based violence or who come from the red light district of, of Mumbai. And it was an absolutely eye-opening experience. The young women in the house were so amazing, so friendly, uh, so kind. And uh, they, you know, showed us all around um, Mumbai and, and, and were uh, so welcoming and warm. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was seeing how they experienced so much discrimination, both as a result of being women and also as a result of, uh, in many cases, coming from either marginalized castes within India or having uh, darker skin. And so we'd often be going in places and, and people might just berate them for, for no reason at all or restaurant owners like saying things like we don't want them in this restaurant, uh, but like, oh, like you Americans, y'all could be in here, but like we want them to not be here and stuff like that. And it was absolutely like heartbreaking. And for me, it, it in many ways, I felt a sense of familiarity. Um, having grown up in the Deep South as a Black man, I've uh, definitely encountered lots of racism and discrimination, especially going on road trips with my family uh, throughout the Deep South and being told at places, we don't serve people who look like you or we like we you are not allowed to like stop in this town. And I, I just felt like none of us like no one should have to live life with the fear of like, oh, if I go into this business, am I going to be denied service? Or uh, am I going to be uh, berated and made to feel like I don't be- don't deserve to the same equal treatment as other human beings uh, because of the circumstances of my birth. And so that actually, that experience led me when I got back onto the MV World Odyssey to talking to a friend of mine who worked in tech about whether or not there was like some sort of technical solution to this. I was like, oh, like I'm used to hearing the phrase, like there's an app for that. So is, you know, what's the app for, for like discrimination and like figuring out what places are discriminatory or not. And my, my friend was like, no, I've never heard of anything like that. Someone should make it. Um, and I was like, oh, I guess that might be me. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, after semester at C ended, I, I ended up pursuing uh, the Green Book Project to, to sort of help people from uh, marginalized communities like uh, not have to go through the experiences that my friends went through in, in Mumbai or that I have gone through um, throughout my life. Truth be told, I was not familiar with the Green Book when I uh, first sailed in semester at C or, or throughout college. I actually ended up kind of stumbling upon it uh, in doing research after semester at C. I, I was like, oh, you know, like what have people done traditionally to like avoid discrimination? Because in my family, it's always just been word of mouth. Like, you know, your cousin maybe had, you know, was, was threatened and, and in this town in like, uh, you know, East Texas, don't go here at this time of night or something like that. And, and so I never knew, like, was there some kind of central database that anyone's ever kept about this? And I ended up uh, in that research discovering the Negro Motorist Green Book, which was a publication published by Victor Hugo Green and his wife, Alma uh, Duke Green, 
back in from the 1930s into uh, the 1960s um, that showed African-American travelers safe locations to stop on America's roads that, that specifically uh, catered to or serviced African-American motorists. That time in America, obviously, uh, Jim Crow was kind of the big specter and it was very, very dangerous uh, for Black folks to make one wrong stop. And so this guide essentially became like a survival tool for millions of African-Americans. And it really, really helped save a lot of lives. And so when I discovered it, I was like, oh, we like, we need something like this. But like for modern times, that's like a little bit more um, real time and a little bit more uh, digital oriented based on our digital world. The, the Green Book Project, as it is, is, is uh, meant to be an inter internationally available. It actually does kind of build upon the original Green Book Guide, which in, in its time also did become an international guide. It, there were um, publications that showed places that were safe to stay in Canada, um, Mexico, and I'm forgetting what the fourth country was. But the, at, at its height, the original Green Book was in an international guide. So that's, that's my goal with the Green Book Project as well. Um, right now, we are kind of hyper-focusing on the United States um, just because that's where our staff is based and that's where we have the most context and the most ability to operate. But uh, we definitely have a very present goal of wanting to make sure that we can expand into an international context and serve marginalized communities all over the world um, as soon as possible. We, we, we want to make sure that justice for marginalized groups can happen anywhere and that you know, where you are located in the world isn't a barrier to finding uh, safe places where you where you won't have to live in fear of discrimination. So race was was very much a <laughs> present fear uh, when I was first even thinking about the DF semester at sea and always is when I travel anywhere. And truth be told, I would say that I was very deeply surprised um, when I actually went on the program and found that I actually felt much more comfortable as a cis straight black man abroad than I did uh, in my own kind of neighborhood back home in Texas. In fact, in many places, I found that I was actually receiving lots of preferential treatment, especially compared to my, my friends who were women or my friends who were queer. I definitely felt this notable, so noticeable difference um, in, in most of the countries we went to. And and so for, it was actually really odd for me as like, it was kind of almost like an out of body experience because of the fact that I felt like I, I felt such a greater sense of privilege while, while traveling abroad. Some cases I even found that like, I was like in many ways, like not even having to face uh, certain dangers that much of my, many of my friends had to face. So it's, it's quite a confusing and perplexing thing. Obviously, uh, racism is, is a, can be an issue uh, regardless of the country, but it looks so much different from country to country. And uh, your experience as a Black person in one country is not going to be the same as um, being a Black person in another country. Um, and I think that's same goes for any other uh, sort of identity. But uh, yeah, for me, I, I would say like it was, it was quite <laughs> surprising for me to feel much more comfortable in my skin in, in many of the countries we visited than I did um, back home in the United States. One question I get pretty often about the Green Book Project is like, isn't this kind of cancel culture? So for folks who aren't familiar with the Green Book Project, the way it works is that the Green Book Project essentially crowdsources reviews and allows people to sort of detail their experiences in different locations based on their identities. So uh, as a, you know, cis straight Black man, I'm also um, Afro-Latino. So when I, I might write a review, I might say, okay, I had this really great experience in this location. You know, the food was great, service was great, staff was super friendly, super welcoming. 
and my intersections or like my identities are that I'm a cis straight black man who's also Latino. And so that can let other people who know who have my same kind of shared identities might say, oh, I, I saw this review, so I will probably have a similar experience in this location. But the fact of the matter is that just because I am safe somewhere as a cis straight black man doesn't mean that my sister, who's a queer black woman, will be safe in that same location. So she might go to that same location and have a negative experience. She might find that the service is actually quite poor for her or that the staff are, are um, very unfriendly, even hostile. And so she might, you know, write a review and say, oh, like I actually had a really negative experience. And here are my intersections. I'm a, you know, queer black woman. And that will, that sort of allows users to, to sort of gauge how they might have those experiences in, in locations by kind of sorting and filtering the reviews by intersections. And can also, the rating system sort of allows people to know like, oh, like 10 people of varying identities have said this place is like unsafe or is hostile to maybe travelers of color or maybe travelers who are queer or maybe travelers who are uh, trans. Um, and so the idea there is to sort of give that sort of crowdsourced data to determine the safety of a location for marginalized groups. And so in that, <laughs> kind of explaining that functionality, I've often received the question like, oh, like, what about cancel culture? You know, uh, do business owners have to worry about getting um, some an unfair review and now suddenly everyone thinks they're racist? And so our answer to that is that we don't want that to happen. We don't want someone to get one negative review and maybe it was miscommunication. Uh, maybe it was simply a mistake uh, or a small amount of ignorance. I don't want to see people lose their business. I want people to see their livelihoods lost or anything like that. So our business model is sort of based on the idea that in the cases where a business owner does receive um, lots of, of bad feedback, they receive lots of reviews, not just a single one or just a couple, then we could actually, we'd actually want to work with that business to help them uh, do better. We, we would help the coach them on their customer service and help them understand where those disconnects, where those, where those mishaps, where those mistakes, or where that ignorance really is potentially coming from. And we really want to heal sort of the relationship between those harmed or affected customers and the business uh, owner or the staff themselves. We, we are currently trying to build a program to help coach businesses. Right at the moment, we're still a small team and we're still growing. So at the moment, we haven't quite started that program. It is kind of uh, something that we're looking to see around uh, probably 2023 when we'll actually be able to launch the program. But we are in the process of like um, building relationships with local businesses and sort of trying to figure out how we might start that initial program. Uh, so it's right now still, I guess, a little bit of a stretch goal and we haven't gotten to quite execute on it, but it is something that is, I think, uh, pretty fast approaching for us. And uh, frankly, uh, this is kind of going on a bit of a rant, but this comes actually from Semester at Sea as well, to a degree. On my voyage in spring, spring 2016, I had the privilege of getting to meet Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was a honorary trustee of the, the Board of Trustees for ISC. And unfortunately, he, he recently passed away. But his, his one leg that he was on our voyage was so impactful, I think not just for me, but for everyone aboard the ship. And the thing that really impressed me about him was his focus on uh, something called restorative justice. And restorative justice, for those who don't know, is sort of the idea that rather than punishing someone just because they've messed up or because they've made a mistake or have harmed someone, we actually want to restore the relationship and heal the harm done 
and, and sort of help the victim and the, the perpetrator um, have a relationship again or, or have a relationship at all if that wasn't the case in the first place. And this was a major factor in ending apartheid and, and helping the communities of South Africa heal a bit from that really oppressive system. And so our whole business model and, and the Green Book Project, it, its mission is based on the idea of restorative justice, that we want to actually heal um, that harm done and we want to have a relationship either be repaired or constructed between harmed communities and business owners who, who might have made a mistake or who might have been unknowingly practicing discriminatory customer service practices. Archbishop Desmond Tutu headed up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which essentially interviewed people, not just from South Africa's government, who are often white folks, but also members of militant organizations that you know, committed various uh, direct action or, or violent actions uh, throughout the end of the apartheid era. And the idea was that was essentially to heal harm done. So victims could get sort of closure, knowing what happened to their loved ones and why. And uh, the perpetrators could get request amnesty if they, one, confessed what crime they did, and then two, could essentially prove that it wasn't just because they just wanted to do it. <laughs> um, and so the idea was like, oh, I was acting on these orders, or like I had reason to believe this thing happened. The idea there being that most people aren't actively wanting to do injustice, or most people aren't actively wanting to um, do harm to another, but can sometimes are the harm we do can be a result of uh, the overall structure above us or the system that we are in. And so it sort of provided an alternative path to what other countries might have seen, which could be like some kind of reverse genocide or some kind of ongoing civil conflict. And the idea was that it would actually heal both sides and, and, and heal um, the victims and, and, and repair the relationships between the victims and, and the perpetrators. It's absolutely hard. Uh, there are people who have sometimes opted out and said, you know what, I'd rather go to prison. <laughs> like, this is a long process. And like, I don't actually want to talk to the victim of, of the crime that I did. And that's, that's, you know, one way to, to handle it. Some people uh, are prefer not to confront the, the harm that they've done. But it, from what I saw, the people who did confront that harm really felt rewarded for it. They came to feel accountable for their actions. And there was many times where like I could see like people it dawning on people's face like oh my gosh I've hurt this person I thought this thing like I was I thought I was just stealing a car and it's like no I'm stealing someone's primary mode of transportation and now they can't they lost their job because of this thing because I hurt them and it really also I also saw it be empowering for victims too because in many cases the victims were like I don't want someone to go to prison for like the next five years I want my car back. <laughs> like I want my car back. And I like an apology. And that's oftentimes enough. And so, yeah, it's, it's radical for sure. And it's not easy, but I do think it's a better way forward in many ways. I got to talk to uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu personally. He actually first met him in uh, the Berlin restaurant on the MV World Odyssey. He was like, for some reason, it was like no one was there aside from me and my friends. We were I think, playing a board game. And he just kind of walks in there with his wife, uh, Leia, and they sit down, they're talking. And I was like, told my friends, I was like, I, that's Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Like, that's the guy who like ended up hard time. <laughs> we are like, oh my gosh. And I was like, I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> and so I like went over and talked to him. And I felt like I was like a little kid kind of like approaching like there's a superhero uh, that came to class or something. But he was like so humble and just so wise and, and friendly and nice. 
and he actually ended up inviting uh, myself and many of my friends and other um, members from the shipboard community to have dinner um, at his house. Um, I think it was on a Sunday. And so I actually like got to go to his house on semester C and like, I, I felt like it was just like kind of random because like his house was just a place in the suburbs. Like it wasn't some opulent kind of mansion or anything like that. It was just like, he honestly looked like my grandfather's house almost (laughs) just kind of an unassuming little place and I was like this guy like you know helped just defeat one of the greatest or worst institutions in human history and he's just like chilling in the suburbs (laughs) I remember like one of the wildest things was just like going looking at his bookcase (laughs) and just like seeing like what he reads and it was like so many just normal books that like like books that I would read and like books that me and my friends would read and I was just like so amazed by the experience and his his welcomingness and his his hospitality and especially just the way that justice and and the the belief that all humans are deserving of us of dignity and kindness just emanated from him and and from his words and from his actions Um, it was yeah, it was wild. It was an amazing experience. I I think I remember him saying that I needed a haircut. Actually, <laughs> I got I got a little uh little I uh, a little my hair kind of got a little overgrown on semester C. I was like, oh, I don't really want to pay for the all the uh, salon care stuff, so I kind of let it overgrow a little bit. I think I remember him saying like, Hey, like you want a haircut? Like I can give you one or something. I was like, No, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> I, we did have conversations, but I, I'm currently blanking as to like exact words at the moment that I could recall. <laughs> it was quite amazing. <laughs> I, I'm African American and Afro Latino, um, and based on the genealogy that my family and I have sort of done, I know with a certain degree of certainty that. Uh, some of my ancestors likely came from Ghana and specifically the Gold Coast of uh, the country. And for those who aren't aware, Ghana uh, was during the transatlantic slave trade a major hub for uh, this for the transatlantic slave trade. Thousands, if not potentially millions, of of Africans were uh, sort of trafficked through uh, the country's coastal region. Um, and so when I was when I went to Ghana. I was really fortunate to get to go on one of the programs to visit uh, Cape Coast Castle. And I was like somewhat dreading it, to be honest, like when I, from even like getting on the ship, I was like, I, I paid for the program and I was like, oh, I, like, I, I know I should do this, but I don't really want to because <laughs> uh, it's just kind of a traumatic history. And yeah, I got there and I started crying like, more tears, I think, than I've ever cried in my entire life. It was just streaming. I couldn't understand what the tour guide was saying most of the time. The, the tears were just streaming down my face and my friends were just like hugging me and like, like you know, trying to comfort me. And, you know, it was, it was hard. Like I, I, at one point we went down into the dungeons um, of the castle and it was just so dark. And I think it's been something like 200 years since, since it was used for the purpose of the slave trade, um, but there's still a smell down there that is hasn't gone away in in, the, in all that time, um, and it's it's hard to go in there through there. But at the end of our sort of towards our the end of our experience there, they took us to this door, and above the door reads the, the words "Door of No Return," 
And so for millions of Africans um, who were trafficked through there, that was the point where if they saw that door, essentially, like that was those were the last steps that they were ever going to take on the African continent. And so they led us through that door. And I just was weeping, like just weeping so much, thinking about uh, so many, how so many of my ancestors went through this, this place and how fearful they must have been and how hurt and how uh, scared and all of the emotions of that. And we came out and it's just beautiful, you know, beach, right? There's, there's fishing boats and uh, just kids running around the, across the beach, just having fun. And then we turn around and there's this door uh, still there and it's above it now reads door of return. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like my ancestors were, you know, taken from this continent and, and placed in the bowels of uh, slave trading ships. And I've come back on a voyage and I'm coming back through this door. Like I'm completing this journey that has been hundreds of years in the making. And so I remember going through back through the door of return and just feeling like this sense of like, oh my gosh, like we did it. Like, like it, it's happened. We came back and I got to be the privileged person in my ancestral line that got to have this experience of coming back to, you know, the homeland, uh, so as to say. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. And like this, the, I come back to the door and it, it the, all the tears and like the, I guess depressive feeling just like came off me and it, it felt like I felt happier and I felt like my tears just kind of went away and I was just like I felt lighter coming back through that door. Since 1963, Semester at Sea has given over 73,000 individuals from 1,700 academic institutions, an unparalleled experience of visiting more than 60 countries across six of the seven continents. Semester at Sea serves undergraduate, gap year, and graduate students. Furthermore, the Lifelong Learner Program allows non-students to experience, explore, and learn alongside students. If you or someone you know wishes to apply or donate to this world-shifting experience, Please visit semesteratc.org for more information. A huge thank you to Christian Lowe, and to analog us right into the next segment of this show, we will be hearing about a charitable collaboration project between Semester at Sea and Tom Shoes, and some other students' experience in Ghana therein. We'll be hearing voices from Casey Hudetz, on-ship communication director from Spring 2014, and two other Spring 2014 students, Haley Oleg and Brian Stewart. Hope you enjoy. When they first stepped onto Ghana's shores, students realized that this was both a beautiful and very different country from other places on the voyage itinerary. During their time in Ghana, voyagers on a Semester at Sea-sponsored field program paid a visit to Winneba, the sister city of Semester at Sea's administrative home in Charlottesville, Virginia. They then traveled to the fisherman village of Cape Coast. 
Along the way, they immersed themselves in the local culture and experienced a rich dose of the country's customs, history, biodiversity, and cuisine. Voyagers also had the opportunity to give back on their trip by participating in a Tom's Shoe Drop, where they learned how Tom's works with in-country partners to carry out its mission of social good. We started off the trip by going and visiting the Winneba City Assembly, and it was so fascinating for me to see the proceedings of a municipality's government and to go in and see the fusion between the traditional rituals and the current way of governing. We then went to a market and got to meet the market queen, who is essentially the queen bee of the market. We also were able to meet with the chief fisherman. We went and we met with the chief fetish priest. Essentially, he worked with the old tribal religion and also fused it with Christianity, which I thought was very indicative, I would say, of Ghana as a whole. They kept the tradition and the passion and respect for their past. And at the same time, there was always, to me, an eye on the prize and moving forward. Then when we left Winneba, we went to Cape Coast, where we spent the morning doing a canopy walk, which was absolutely beautiful. We also did the slave dungeons in Elmina. Seeing the conditions and seeing that dark part of our history, it was hard. It was very heavy, but I'm so glad that we went. I was able to partake also in the Tom's Shoe Give, which has been the most impactful experience of this voyage by far. We pulled up to the orphanage, which I didn't know it was going to be an orphanage where we went until we got there, so that added a whole different level of meaning for me. And there were just kids everywhere. They were lined up on buildings and they were playing with each other. We had 2,500 pairs of shoes to donate, which is a lot of shoes. And after we got to interact and create a relationship with some of the orphans who we were donating the shoes to, we jumped right in and we started putting the shoes on the feet of the children and making sure that they got the correct size and that everything fit. To step foot into a place where children just run to you, hug you, laugh, play with you, and to know that you are making their lives better by just putting shoes on their feet. To try to sum up the experience in words is not enough. I would say you'd have to experience it to really get the full effect of what that does for you, but then to see in turn what you're doing for the person that you're helping. The shoe drop was really important for the Ghanaian children for quite a few reasons. First of all, illnesses that you don't really think about um, are transmitted through having bare feet, parasites, ringworm, as well as just general injury. So just walking through human waste or on rocks and getting cut, that's a huge problem for the kids. And also something that we don't really think about 
is that shoes are a part of school uniforms. If children can't afford the school uniforms or for some reason can't get them, then they can't go to school. This act of kindness, this act of charity, can change their life for the better. For some of the kids who didn't have shoes, for some of the kids who don't know what it's like to have a decent pair of shoes, was just absolutely amazing. their unbridled joy and their passion for life with the little that they have and making everything and every moment count, it inspired me to have the same joy. So being part of the Tom Shoe Drop and being able to see that joy and gratitude made me want to infuse that into my daily life. And being part of the Tom's Club has just helped me feel part of the shipboard community. And it's allowed me to feel like I'm doing something instead of just talking about it, instead of just ideating, actually going and getting on the ground and making a difference. Being involved in the Shoe Drop and the Tom's Club has been life-changing on both fronts. Tom's Club has provided me friends that are like-minded, that want to change the world that has a thirst and a hunger for social justice, for social need, to just be able to lend a helping hand. The hardest thing was leaving them, climbing all over you, holding your hand, not wanting to let you go. That's something I'll always remember. And I cannot tell you how many times I got thanked and had children say, God bless you, and that was worth it <laughs> for the entire trip, those few hours. They made this entire semester worth it for me. To close out this year, fifth episode of the Semester at Sea Wavelengths podcast, we will be hearing the Semester at Sea alma mater song. Special thank you to all the alumni and ISE Semester at Sea supporters we heard from this week. And thank you, listener, for joining us this week. To any alumni, please reach out to the show. The content on this show is only possible with your help and your experiences. Once again, to apply, donate, or learn more, please visit semesteratsea.org. The Semester at Sea podcast will be back soon. Thank you for listening this week. Until then, sailing off. Stop.
Go, my. 